Our subject turns to the practical issue of making meals, opening our homes, and being willing to recapture the art of hospitality. One of the greatest God-given needs as human beings, we need one another. Spiritual leaders must be devoted to hospitality. Here is our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, to help us learn how to welcome even strangers. There's a lot of talk in our country about leadership on a national level, politically, and we've been learning that leadership from a divine perspective or from God's perspective, one of the major things is that character is everything. In the last election, there was major debates about whether your personal character should enter in to decisions about leadership. And I think that what we've discovered uh, again and again and again is that character really is everything. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, when the Lord begins to talk about who should be recognized as a leader in the body of Christ, he says that a leader must be someone who has no water gates undercover. There's no, they must be above reproach is the word that's used. It closes the list of characteristics by using this expression that a spiritual leader needs to be someone that has a good reputation. In other words, someone needs to have a clear character before God. They also need to have a good reputation with their fellow uh, citizens, their fellow townsmen, people that live around them. They need to be a good neighbor. They need to have a good reputation. We can ask the question, how can that be about? And in our studies over the last several weeks, we've been studying together about how we develop a good reputation. It begins in your personal life. Titus chapter 1.8 says that a spiritual leader needs to be a godly person. And what that means, just to remind you, is that it means you have the right vertical relationship with God. It means that you're in touch personally with God. And I want you to know that as we gather together, this is not about an organization. It's not about you know, a, church fan, a, a church as a business. This is about your own walk with the Lord, gathering together with other people that have a walk with the Lord. I want you to know that my, my, my underlying concern is that every one of you are connected vertically with the Lord. That you realize that, that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago died on the cross, that he died for your sins, that on the third day he rose again from the dead, and that you can have a personal relationship with him. And that's what establishes a godly relationship. It's what establishes like the fact that you can call God your friend. We covet that for every one of you. But you know, you can't just have a godly relationship with the invisible God. That needs to flesh itself out in relationships with your fellow men with brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why the next thing says that you need to be wise in the way that you live towards one another. And so spiritual leaders not only need to be connected vertically with their God, they also need to be connected horizontally with life. And that's what a life of wisdom is about. They also need to be someone who's sober. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it tells us that a spiritual leader needs to be someone who has their act together in controlling their passions. And often when we talk about sobriety, we mean someone that has control of alcohol. But it means much broader than that. It means you just have your act together in your life. You're sober. You're able to look at things and you don't get overheated or over cold. You're able to maintain a balance. You're sober. Then we, that's all involved with our personal life. Three words that characterize our vertical relationship with God, horizontal relationship with our fellow man, and then a sobriety in the way that we live. Then we started talking about our home life. When God looks for spiritual leaders, we learn that he doesn't look at the Harvard Business School. He doesn't look for big success in business. He looks underneath the roof of our house. 
You see, you can't fake it. You can fake it here Sunday morning. I don't really know what you guys are like. You don't really know what I'm like. You have to come and live underneath our roof. And wives and husbands know what their partners really like. Kids know what their parents really like. And that's why God, when he says you're looking for good leaders in a church family, look at what they do in their home. And we talked and we did a whole lesson on being devoted to one woman or devoted to one man. And so we have the idea, a major stress upon sexual purity. Then we talked about the need to be devoted to one's children. The last time we met together, we talked about the need for you to be a godly father and a godly mom and to be a good disciplinarian for your children. If you didn't have a chance, you need to get that tape. I gave you some very important principles that are, that are illustrated to us from God himself as the ultimate father about the way that you need to raise your kids in your home. It's absolutely essential for you, if you're going to develop in spiritual leadership, you've got to get your act together in your home the way you relate to your kids. And there's some basic almost common sense principles that we all kind of know, but it's easy for us not to practice them. So it's very important to be devoted to your children in your home. In fact, U.S. News and World Report just did a, a, a cover story called Honor Your Children. Instead of it's a takeoff on honor your parents, they said honor your children. And it's, it's saying that American parents need to remember their kids. They need to be parents to their kids. And we talked about what it means to be a parent to your kids. Today we're going to go on from this stress upon home life. In fact, we're, complete, we're going to complete the list of godly leadership characteristics in the home. We're going to talk about one that can almost seem innocuous. You need, as a congregation, as groups of believers, we need to be devoted to hospitality. Look at it. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. 1 Timothy is one of the books written by the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the Apostle Paul talks about this characteristic that needs to be present in the life of a spiritual leader. It says, now the overseer, that's an elder, must be above reproach. That's what I was just talking about. He must have a good reputation. He must be above reproach. He must be devoted to one woman. A one-woman kind of a man is what that phrase means, or a one-man kind of a woman. He needs to be temperate. Remember I talked about being sober. There's the word sobriety. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, and then our next word is the word hospitable. And what I'm doing is taking these characteristics and breaking them out in, so you can kind of think of them in regard to your personal life, in regard to your family life, and then in regard to interpersonal relationships in our next studies, and then we'll finish with our world out there in the marketplace and our business life. We want to pick up this final characteristic dealing with the family. Paul repeats it in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. He tells us that we need to be devoted to hospitality. Literally, the word means this. Literally, the word means that you're devoted to touching base with strangers. Now, I'm in, I was raised in New York. If you haven't gathered from my accent, I think most of it's gone, but I can still talk about Tori Tudor and Tudor Avril in Brooklyn or the water. And uh, I was raised back east. And I've got news for you back east. If you go to New York City, uh, when you go to New York City and you go to walk down the street, you don't walk down the street going, hello, how are you? You know, my name's Dave. Good to meet you. In fact, if you do that, they're going to think that you're gay or something like that uh, because eye contact on, on the streets of New York is a forbidden thing. When you're walking on the streets of New York, you just walk straight ahead and you keep your eye. If you're up there on the Wall Street area up at the north, the, the section of that part of the city and you're getting ready to go to a big office up on Wall Street, you carry your briefcase, you have your beautiful suit on and you look straight ahead and when you get in the elevator, you don't talk to anybody. They push the buttons, you go up. I was raised in that kind of an atmosphere. You're not very hospitable. 
Because everybody's thinking about themselves. In New York, you're thinking about pressing ahead. Now, I need to be fair because I've been, like, on Chinatown, for example, where New Yorkers were incredibly friendly to me. One time I ate there, and a guy helped me park, and there was a great big line outside the Chinese restaurant. They helped me get my kids all lined up when they were little. And New Yorkers can really be friendly. But at times, to be a lover of strangers is completely absent. That should not be absent from the Lord's people. I want you to know that when I'm going to talk to you about what I believe is one of the most powerful things that you can do in your life, that I can do in my life, that we can do together to touch people with what it really means to know Christ. And the basic simple thing is for us to be someone who loves strangers, who's someone that you could characterize about their life is that they never meet a stranger. And that's literally what the word means. It's saying that a spiritual leader in God's family needs to be someone who never meets a stranger. They always care about people that they're meeting. And they always reach out to them. You know, it's not just a given that you want to reach out to your neighbors, that you want to reach out to people that you work with, that you want to reach out to new people. It's not just a given that you want to do that. In fact, a stranger that might seem, you know, there's some church families that really don't love strangers. In fact, when you go into their church family, they make it really clear to you that they don't want you to come back because they've been able to control their situation for years. They founded the church and they have certain families that control it and they don't really want anyone to come. And I want you to realize how terrible that is because if you really believe what you say you believe, you believe that you have met the one individual in all the world that conquered death. You believe with all of your hearts that you've met a person who left the tomb empty. There's only one person in all of the universe, in all of history, that's ever done that, and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd be willing to say that almost many of you would stand up and say, you know, Jesus is the most incredible man that ever lived. You can never meet someone that's more loving, that's more gentle, that's more just, that's more good. There's nobody else in all the universe that's worth knowing more than him. That's what most of you would believe. Now stop and think about that. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Savior, and he has told us that we need to go into all the world to tell people about him, then it only stands to reason that wherever we go as a believer in Jesus, we need to be in love with the people that are around us, trying to make touch base with them, trying to get connected with them, trying to get related to them, so that we can have a, have a vehicle, have a means of getting this message of Christ across. You see, it only makes sense. And only when a church family starts to think about themselves, instead of thinking about Christ and his love, do they become closed? The same thing in your own individual family. As a believer, some of you have already become closed in your life. If I were to ask you, when was the last time you had somebody into your home? You had them in for a lunch or had them in for a dinner or had them over to play some games. And some of you have become a closed family. I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to try to get you off the dime because that closure in your life is going to make you enter a pathway that gets more and more lonely. Some of you are open in your personalities. You love having people in and you love getting to know them and establishing relationships. And I want to motivate you about realizing that that gift of being open and wanting people in is one of the most powerful ways that you can present Christ. 
It's one of the most powerful ways that you can help people to come to know who the Savior really is. Now, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks to us. It's kind of like an extended commentary on what it means to be the kind of a person that loves strangers. Like, what does it mean to be a hospitable person? We have an idea that it kind of means to be a salesperson, you know, someone that always has a happy face and kind of a positive thinker, and they're a rah, rah, rah kind of a person. That's not necessarily so. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, I want you to turn over there. The Apostle Paul gives us an extended explanation of the kind of characteristics, the kind of personality that generate a warm, friendly, open family, a warm, friendly, open church, a warm, friendly, open individual. What it means to be a lover of strangers. So just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Romans, you'll find it. Not really. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. There it is. Romans chapter 12. Now look at verse 9. Now some of you remember this chapter. Let me put it in context for you. Romans chapter 12 begins with, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So the book, this chapter begins by saying, every one of you need to present your body. You need to live your life completely dedicated to the Lord. The next section... The next section says that every single one of you is specifically gifted. In fact, I believe that you're uniquely blended together. Every one of you is uniquely blended together to exercise unique abilities within the body of Christ. And that's what the next section is about. It talks about the body of Christ and compares it to a human body. And it says just like there's ears and there's eyes and there's fingers, every one of you are different expressions, different parts of the body of Christ. In verse 9, though, he talks about what the individual character of those different parts of the body need to be like. And he talks about the way that we should be in our personalities so that we can exercise hospitality. He'll close this section challenging us to be hospitable. But before he does it, he talks to us about the background of a person's life that causes them to be Hospital, hospitable and warm towards strangers. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. The very first thing that only makes sense. If you're going to be an open, hospitable person, you need to be loving in your relationships towards one another. And there's what it's saying, and this is a bottom line. In fact, over and over again, when you talk about the first century church, when you talk about these original disciples that followed Jesus, the bottom line of their life was they were characterized by something that you probably heard characterized by agape. Now, agape wasn't a brand new word. It was a word that was used in Greek for love, but it wasn't used too frequently. It was used a few times in the Old Testament for sexual love, for example. It used agape in the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But in secular Greek, it really wasn't used that much. Every once in a while, it was just a general word for love. But it was like the New Testament seized on this word, and they they grabbed it, and they, they infused it, with this new understanding of the love and the grace of God in Christ that they had received. You see, when God loved us in Christ, we didn't deserve his love. We weren't earning his love. God gave us a total free gift. And the word agape is the word that that describes this spontaneous, self-sacrificial, open giving of relationship with other people. And it tells us that we need to have that open, gracious response of love, and we need to do it without a mask. That's literally what it says there. You need to do it without play-acting. You see, what, it uses a word here, that word play-acting or hypocrisy, is a word that's used of acting. 
If you've ever had some friends that are actors, if you've ever been out in L.A. and you get to know some of the actors, then you'll realize there's something incredible about an actor. In fact, all of you have gone, I can illustrate it this way. All of you have gone to the movies. For example, you go to a movie and some of you guys, you know, you fall in love with the, the movie actress. If you're not married, you know, you really, you know, you really say, boy, if only I could meet that girl. And, and you fall in love with the way that this girl acts on the screen. In other words, she seems to be kind and everybody's next door neighbor and just seems to be the perfect person. You just, as a guy, you say, man, if, man, if only I could find a woman like that. And you, you fall in love with the role that she played in that movie. You girls can do the same thing with a guy. In other words, you, you see a, a romantic movie and the, the, the hero up there is just your dream guy. I mean, he's just an incredible guy. Well, then several weeks go by and you've got this ideal vision of what this person would be like. Then you happen to see them on a talk show where they're not acting a role so much. They're just being themselves. And you listen, you find out that the, that the sweet, gentle, the girl next door swears like a trooper. She's coarse and hard as you can imagine. And you're going, man, what in the world ever happened? You forgot an actor or an actress is exactly that. In fact, if you married the person, you might find out, you know, that, that man, they've got about 40 different personalities they can be because they're an actor. They're an actress. The nature of being an actor is that, is that you don't project externally who you really are. You present the role that you're playing. And human personalities can do that. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that when believers gather together on Sunday morning, they should not be acting a role. And sadly, many believers do. Many times people go to church. You see, where I was raised, it's not an in thing to go to church. So if you go to church, you know, who cares about playing a role because no one expects you to be there in New Jersey in church anyway. So if you're at church, you might as well be yourself. So there's real clear divisions between those that know the Lord and those that, know, that don't. But down here in the Southwest, it's not true. And so it's really easy for people all over the Southwest to go to church and to play act. They put on their nice suit. They act really nice. They act like Jesus people for 11 to 12.30, whenever the preacher gets done. And then they go back Monday morning, and they don't act like Jesus people anymore. And Paul is saying, that's not going to work. We can't do that. He's saying, that's acting like a loving person, but you're just a play actor. You're just a hypocrite. And I would tell you, like, I don't want you not to be loving, but it would be much better for you just to be yourself, just to act like yourself and be honest at least you would be beginning to take some of the first steps towards the kind of reality that the Lord wants to have in your life than for you to play at. In this body of believers, I want you to know there's no need for you to play like you're anyone else. Just be yourself. What I want you to do is to listen to the God's word and to let the Lord Jesus love you. And if you'll let the Lord Jesus love you and you'll understand his grace, you'll start to really be transformed. He'll come to live in your life if you trust him. If you begin to open yourself up and trust him, you'll be changed. You'll become loving because you're loved. And Paul is saying that the Christian life is, there's no hypocrisy in it. One of the things as a pastor teacher I want to share with you, what you see is what you get. This is the way I am. You can ask Mary. What I'm giving you is the way that I am. Most of you that have been with us a long time, you know exactly the way I am. I'm very competitive, playing basketball. I like athletics. I can lose my temper at times. What you see is what you get. And over the years that I've taught you, I've tried to teach you without hypocrisy. Like, I never planned on being a pastor. In fact, I was a chemistry major in, high, in college. I thought the seminary, the pre-seminary guys were weird. They all acted weird. They, they talked with strange voices, and, you know, they, 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 they talked about weird subjects. And the one thing I never thought I would be was a pastor. 
I was a chemistry major. I was going to go into, I was going to go into medicine. And so when I did go into the pastorate, one of the things that I swore I wouldn't do is to get this ministerial air. And I haven't. In fact, last night, the Lord proved it to me again. Uh, I was in a very embarrassing situation. In fact, Jeff Thompson was there. In fact, he's still laughing about it. And I can't even tell you what I did. It was so embarrassing. We're just still laughing about it. And Jeff went into the room. It, was, it just struck him so funny. He went back in the room and says, man, I thought my minister was on a pedestal and I found out that he's just like anyone else and he can do something that's just as embarrassing as anyone else. And that's true because I'm just Dave and you're just you. And this needs to be a place where there's no play acting. There's no hypocrisy. There's no roles. There's just the beauty of the reality of our love for Jesus. And when we tune in on that, we can learn to love one another. The Apostle Paul goes on and fleshes this out a little bit more. He says, if you're really going to be in love with one another without hypocrisy, then it needs to be built on the fact that you abhor what is evil. You see, one of the things that destroys our fellowship together is that if we start to fellowship around evil, then evil begins to tear us apart. Do you know that there is a community, a fellowship, a hospitality of evil? See, every one of you get together with people that have similar core values to what you have. Kids do it. Adults do it. College students do it. Everybody gets together with a group of people that love what they love. And if you love evil... For example, if you love to get together and tell dirty jokes and listen to coarse, very violent, abusive music, if you like that, then what it's telling you is that's where your heart is. You're in love with evil. And that's a very dangerous game to play. And parents, by the way, that's what you need to talk to when your teenagers start to, to, to wander a little bit. They start to like certain things. You know, don't yell and scream about the rhythm. You need to talk about where are the loves of your life. And there's a dark side to every one of our personality that can really be titillated and excited by evil. And as parents, you need to get right in there slugging, and you need to start showing where that evil will lead and the pain and the destruction that will bring. Paul uses a very strong word. He says God's children need to have an abhorrence for evil. Parents, one of the ways to help your kids to abhor evil is don't let them just see the surface of evil. Don't let them see the glittering image of evil. Satan presents a glittering image of what evil is. What you need to do is to let them see the real thing. For example, when I was a little kid, my mom in the streets of New York, my dad had a radio broadcast every single Saturday night. And I used to get, you know, my legs would start killing me after my dad preached for a couple hours and they had singing and everything else. My mom used to take me out and walk me down the streets of Broadway. And, you know, you go into one of those Broadway plays, and, man, they're the most beautiful people in all the world, you know, spotlights and beautiful music and everything else. But you know what my mom would do? Late at night, after the Broadway plays were out, we'd go into these cafes, and all the showgirls would come in. And the mascara would be running down their cheeks, and, you know, they'd be sweaty. And, and you know, you'd see the real thing, and you'd hear them talking about what it really was like to be a showgirl in New York. And as a little kid, I remember seeing those girls and hearing them talk. And you know what? The glittering image was shattered. Suddenly they were real people living in this, this facade of a life. And it wasn't nearly as exciting. You see, that's what you need to let your kids see. If they want to drink a little bit, you know what you need to do? Take them to the Union Mission in Dallas. Take them on a weekend and, and have them minister with you and let some real-life drunks talk to your kids. They'll persuade them that drinking's really not an in thing. 
Let him see the pain. Let him see what evil really does. You know what it'll do then? It'll cause you to abhor evil. If you're tintillated by evil, you're not looking at the real thing. You need to see the real thing, and it causes you to hate it. It causes you to abhor it. And in God's family, we need to have a fellowship that's built on a repulsion to what causes pain, to what is destructive of, of people's lives and their relationships. We need to have an abhorrence of evil. The next thing it says in contrast to that, the extreme of that, is we need to cling to what is good. We need to grasp what is good. Having this terrible hatred for evil, we also need to have the balance as we train our, our families, also in our own lives. We need to have a tremendous love for what is good. And there's so many things in God's creation that are so good. You need to have fellowship that's built on good music, beautiful music. We had the privilege of last Saturday night, a week ago, of going and hearing the Dallas Symphony, and they, they did Gershwin, and, and it was just an incredible night. The Dallas Chorus sang, and marvelous, beautiful music. We need, to, we need to be devoted to that as believers. We need to rejoice in things that are done so good and so skillfully and, and beautiful sounds and beautiful art. That needs to be part of our homes as well. It also needs to be part of our fellowship. As God's children, we need to be devoted and to cling to what is good. You see, sometimes believers come across that all they do is abhor evil. And they're always negative and they reject everything else. Everything is reject, reject, reject. Paul's not saying that. Our fellowship needs to be built on clinging to all the good things that are around us. Very important to do that. And after the last beautiful three days that we've had with that sun shining the way it is, no matter what might be going on in your life, as you look at the days we have, it's a foretaste. This is what the weather is going to be like in heaven. Okay? It's going to be about 68 degrees at night, about 80 during the day, crystal clear, beautiful. That's what it's going to be in heaven. So you need to cling to what is good. Then he comes back in verse 10, reminding us again, you need, be, you need to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And here he talks about that family relationship. Every one of you, from God's perspective, if you've come to know Christ as your Savior, you are in a family. You're a brother and a sister. You are related to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you need to, therefore, honor one another as above yourselves. You see, most of us are thinking about ourselves. One of the tricks of the Christian life is that instead of thinking about yourself, you're thinking about others. And one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life is to get you to think about others and not thinking about yourself. And you know, it's very healthy to think about others. You see, if you start thinking about yourself, you're either going to be proud or you're going to get depressed. If you're looking at things and you're being successful and everything's going great, then you get proud. If things are going terrible, then you get depressed. And either way, you're off base. What the Lord wants you to do is to have an other direction. You need to be looking out. We worry far too much in our culture about ourselves. We're a narcissistic culture that constantly focuses inward. The Lord wants you to lose yourself in Christ. He wants you to value your identity in Christ because he does love you. But he doesn't want you to be preoccupied with yourself. I asked Tom Landry one day, I said, Tom, how in the world can you handle, you know, getting fired and, and, and you go from, you know, the epitome of being the toast of Dallas and a big parade and then you get fired, you know. How can you handle all that? You know, how do you handle that big swing? And Tom said this, he said, you know, Dave, I just don't take, I take my job very seriously, I take the Lord very seriously, but I just don't take myself that seriously. And he doesn't. 
He's very easy to talk to, very easy to be with in interpersonal relationship because he doesn't take himself so seriously. He thinks about others. That's what the Lord wants us all to learn to do. That we're not, we're not when, we're, when we go to a party or something, all of us tend to think of, I wonder what they're thinking about me. I wonder how they think about the way I'm, way I'm dressed. I wonder how they think about how I'm coming across. Godly children of the Lord learn to think, man, it doesn't make any difference what they think about me. I need to be thinking about them. And it will totally change your life if you allow the Holy Spirit to cause you to become an other-thinking person instead of just focusing on yourself. And that's what a hospitality flows from. Related to that, you need to honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Some of you have decided, I'm not going to open my home anymore. I'm not going to be hospital anymore. You've lost what we call your spiritual bubble. In fact, the word that's literally used here, it says you need to be boiling in the spirit. In fact, it's a good charismatic verse. You need to have have excitement. One of the things that charismatic believers have is an excitement and a zeal. Sometimes Bible church people can be so intellectual and so staid, they don't have any enthusiasm. In fact, in this audience today, there's some of you that say, well, Dave, I'm a realist. You see, I look at life, you know, you're one of those, you know, that you've always heard the expression, you know, the glass is half full. You know, it's not, it's, I mean, it's half empty, not half full. And someone said, well, the wisdom of that is whether or not you're pouring or whether you're drinking. And there's a lot of truth in that. But if you're a pessimist that always looked at the wrong side of things, you're going to lose your zeal. And you're not going to be an hospitable person. You're not going to be an open-minded person. You know what? I found over the years that it really isn't realistic to be negative. For example, a small group 22 years ago, about four couples, about eight of us, maybe, maybe eight couples, started a church family over there on the other side of Midlothian. You know what? Everyone said, no, you can't do that. It's a rural Texas town. You know, you can't start a church in Midlothian. That's crazy. That's a dumb idea. But there was a group of people that said, no, I don't think it is a dumb idea. We think it's really important to be able to meet in a Sunday morning and open up God's word and study it. We think... That's really important. And to try to to really get to know the biblical Christ and to really become like him, we believe that's really important. We believe it can happen in Midlothian. You know what? They were were the ones that were realistic. We've had mission influences in South America and and East Germany and Austria and, and the Philippines. And I could go on and on talking about the influence that you have had. So you see, it wasn't the realist that back there in, in 73 that was saying God can really work. It was the bubbly enthusiasm of an Al Bakken that says, we can do it, let's do it. And Carol Thomas saying, man, let's go for it. One of the things that our leadership did at the very beginning is faced with insurmountable things. They said, man, let's just do it. Let's go for it. Bubbly enthusiasm, whether it's in your business whether it's in your church life, whether you're in your individual life. Listen, you don't know how long you're going to live anyway. You may as well be bubbly and enthusiastic. And maybe you're not the kind of person that's going to do that outwardly, but I want to encourage you to be the kind of person that says, let's do it. Let's go for it. We're only going to live once, man. Let's be fervent in serving the Lord. And so Paul talks about hospitality that needs to flow, a love that is bubbling with spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. You need to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And then he closes by saying, sharing with God's people who are in need, practicing hospitality. I believe that what we're talking about, sharing with God's people that are in need, showing hospitality to one another is the most powerful thing that you can do as a group of believers. You know what? It's really hard. There's going to be a lot of people moving into our area. 
In fact, across the land, you know, things are growing. People are coming. You know what happens, though? It's really, really hard when you come to a new, a new town or a new city or something like that. You know, it's really hard to make the great big step and walk in, for example, to a church family. Now, some people will do that, but that's a really big step. But you know what? It's not a very big step to come over to your house and have hamburgers or have hot dogs or have a bowl of Cheerios or whatever you want to do. That's not a big step. You know how we're going to be able to help people to really know who Jesus is? Because that's what it's about. I want you to realize it's just about helping people to know who the biblical Christ is. And there's so much confusion out there about who the biblical Christ is. The longer that I get to know people, there's so much confusion about what, what, what spiritual things really are, what pastors should do, what churches are. There's so much confusion about that that takes us away from the essence of what Christ has really done. And what we need to do is to get in conversations where we can really talk about all that mess. We can talk about all that confusion and we can really share about what Christ has really done. But you know what? It's hard to do that in a church building. It's much easier to do it in your living room. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in the early church, the way that they touch people with the truth that Jesus was alive is they had people into their homes. Instead of living in these isolated, closed cells, instead of isolating themselves from others, believers in the first century were known as being hospitable, open, loving people. In fact, the world called them partiers. They thought they were, they were licentious partiers. They thought when they had these love feasts at one another's homes that they were do, having big immoral parties. They were, they were having such, there was such noise and laughter and fun. Boy, the church has gone a long way from that, hasn't it? Well, I want to recapture that. My dream is that the Lord will help, that will even use what I'm talking to you about today to cause some of you to open your home and to start having all different kinds of people in. For you to realize that one of the most powerful ways that you can touch people's lives is not by isolating yourself in your own little group of friends, but by being a person who takes your, your close friends and uses it as a doorway to open it up to reach a lot of other people. Now, I want to close by telling you some things that are going to keep you from doing that, that will keep you from doing that. Number one is no reciprocation. Some of you are going to say, man, I'm going to do this, and you're going to have somebody over 20 times, and they never have you back. In other words, you invite them over, you invite them over, you invite them over, and they never invite you back. And you're going to get hurt by it. Because you're going to start saying, you know, or something will go like this. You invite them over and you have steaks. They invite you over and they have cheap hamburger that's about six days too old. And you start, you know, you bring your calculator and you say, man, I spent so much on the steak and they only spent so much on the hamburger. You know what you're doing? You're counting. It's the way almost all of you work in your relationships. Almost everybody in this room, you're from a family. Remember when you were a kid, there were three kids in your house, some of you? And your parents had to come out with receipts on, when, when you got through opening your Christmas gifts and they had to go through the receipts to prove to you kids it was all even. Remember that? That's wrong. That's not what Christmas is about. And some of you still have that mentality. In all of your relationships, I want you to think hard about this. In all your relationships, you're always looking at the bottom line. Is it fair? And if, you, if that's your attitude to the heart, you'll never be hospitable the way the Lord wants you to be. Because you have a crazy Savior. You know what your crazy Savior tells you to do? 
If you really want to follow him, then the best way to do it is find somebody that there's not a chance in the world they could reciprocate. Go out on the street somewhere, and that's what he would tell. He would tell stories. You go out and find someone that there's absolutely no way that they can repay you. He said, go out on the street and bring some beggars in and bring some cripples in and bring some people that can't see and bring them into your house. There's no way in the world they could ever reciprocate. You know what you'll find out? Then he says your heavenly father can reciprocate. Now, that's a radical way to live, but man, is it fun. It's incredibly, incredibly fun. Really fun. Because you start being free. You see, you're not into this fairness thing. You're just into giving love. You know what else will happen? You'll find out that those people that you thought couldn't reciprocate, you'll find out that they reciprocate in ways that you could have never, never, never dreamed. Because you'll have the gift of love. The Holy Spirit will start to create real love. And love can't be bought. But you'll never experience that love as long as you're reciprocating. Some of, you know, I know a lot of pastors that are burned out in the ministry. You know why? Because they feel people didn't reciprocate. And I could have burned out on that. You see, we all want to make the ministry fair. And as soon as you start to make it fair, it's lost. It's broken. It dissolved in your hand. The Lord is saying if you're going to be like Christ and you just devote yourself to one another, you just pour it out and you're going to get crushed and you're going to get hurt. But you've got to nail it down. The Lord has not called you to give reciprocal relationships. He's called you to give loving relationships. And love is not about reciprocation. It's about giving from a biblical standpoint. Second of all, you're going to have hurtful comments. Hurtful comments. Some of you are going to, have, some of you are going to really reach out. You're going to really get involved. You're going to show a lot of hospitality. And someone's going to cut down what you did. Or someone's going to make a hurtful comment that just slays you. And you're going to get mad. And you know what you're going to do next? You're going to say, man, I'm not going to do this anymore. It happens again and again and again. Hurt feelings in a church family is what Satan uses to destroy hospitality. And what you need to do, you need to learn to do two things. Number one, you need to learn to try to let love cover it. When someone says that catty, destructive, hurtful remark, number one, you need to try to just pray about it and let it go. Because if you try to deal confrontation with everything that someone says that you take wrong, you're going to spend your whole life in confrontation. So the first thing you do is let love cover a multitude of sins. But sometimes love won't cover it. And when it gnaws in your belly, and when it keeps sitting there, instead of leaving the church family, leaving the fellowship of God's family, which people do all the time, you need to go to the person that offended you and talk about it, eyeball to eyeball. It's absolutely essential, and most of you don't do it. People all over this area are not in fellowship with God's people because they're mad, because someone hurt them. They said, man, I went to a church, I thought everyone would be just like Christ and perfect, and somebody acted like the devil towards them, and they got mad. And then they're out of there. And that'll destroy your fellowship with God's people. You've got to learn, if you can't let love cover it, then you go and talk about it, and you try to work it through And thirdly, if you can't work it through, then you let it go to the Lord. You let the Lord handle it, and you stay in fellowship with God's people. It's too important a thing to have brother-sister relationships in the body of Christ for you to get mad and to tank it and to remove yourself from God's people. And I'm talking about something very serious. Anger and unresolved anger destroys hospitality more than anything else that I know. It also destroys marriages more than anything else that I know. Thirdly, social prejudices. 
we are, it's incredible how deep inside social prejudices can be. One of the things the Lord wants to do in our hospitality is he wants red and yellow, black and white to be able to fellowship in God's family. He wants rich and poor, middle class and elite, elite and poverty stricken. In the New Testament, the body of Christ was across all social stratas, across all races. And it's easy to piously talk about, I'm not prejudiced. You don't know our prejudices. We don't know our prejudices until you're developing friendships across social, economic, racial barriers. And one of the most important things we can do, we need to watch our conversation. I pray for the day, as Midlothian grows, when we have a church family, that our fellowship is as colored as the rainbow. It's really important to do that because God says he loves the world. And as a church family, I want you to know, if you tell a joke... I want you to ask yourself this. Am I telling a joke about someone that Jesus Christ died for? And, and, and Jesus loved an individual? What am I saying about the person I'm telling the joke about? The language that I use. You see, prejudice just kind of slips out of me. And it's absolutely destructive. And I want you to think very seriously, because as a church family, if the Holy Spirit's going to really use this, one of the things that needs to happen is there needs to be hospitality that cuts across all social, racial, economic barriers. It is a totally open thing. And it's easy to talk about how we need to do that. It's another thing to actually try it. But you know what? When you do it, when you try it, when you work through your prejudices, then you open yourself up to the reality of who Jesus really is. The final one is this. You're going to experience undependability. You know what's going to hurt a lot of you? The wife makes a great meal, calls people up. Everyone says they're coming. Six couples say they're coming. And the night comes, all the food's been bought, food's been made. Comes time to eat. You know how many people show up? Two. Because that's where our culture is. Now, what does that do to hospitality? Now, I tell the leader, I tell the leader, you need to go with the two. And you need to love the two. And you need to let it grow from the two. But it's destructive of hospitality. It causes people to be hurt. And one of the things I want you to grow in is it's, it's counterculture. But we need to be a people that when we make promises, we make our yes, yes, and our no, no. You know what a lot of us are like? You're like me. Mary says, Dave, have you taken out the garbage? Yes, I am. Yes. Now what I mean by my yes is, yes, I'm going to. You know what Mary says? No, you haven't taken out the garbage. Because Mary, it's going to be yes or no. And if you say yes, it means yes, the garbage is in the tank. It's out of here. When I say yes, it means I'm going to get around to it. That's a lie. That's nothing but a lie. And a whole lot of you operate like that. You're like me. You like to keep everybody calm. You you like to say yes. You like to say you're going to do things. But you know you're not going to do it. Don't be like that. That's dishonest. It's wrong. And pray for me in that area. And Mary's been a great help me to nail me down saying, what is it, yes or no? And so I've learned to say, no, I haven't taken out the garbage yet. I will. That's the truth. And learn to be like that in your social relationships. Undependability can destroy our church family. Undependability, saying you're going to do something, but not doing it, not following through destroys fellowship. It hurts. Now we close with a great, great story about why it should be hospitable. There was an old guy one day that all of his life wanted to have one thing. 
but it was impossible for him to ever get it. One day he was sitting out under a tree. He saw three strangers coming by, three strangers out there in the desert, hot, hot in the day. And he could have just sat there, left his video on, you know, watching his video program and enjoying his lemonade. Could have just stayed alone. But instead he jumped up, ran outside, ran outside his tent, got those three guys and said, you guys need to come over to eat. And unlike a lot of husbands, you know, they come in, bring three strangers in. Oh, by the way, honey, I've got three more men to feed tonight. What are we going to do? He didn't do that. This husband, he did spring these visitors on his wife, but he said, honey, I'm going to go out. And he set the menu. He said, I'm going to go out and we're going to kill the calf. And he's got the calf killed and he, and he suggested the menu. And then the wife proceeded to follow through with those plans. And then they sat down with the three visitors and he gave them a meal and they talked. Was it very important that he did that? Yes. Because in the middle of the conversation, one of the men that he was entertaining said this. A year from now, your wife is going to have a baby. She was around the corner in another part of the tent. She busted out laughing. I mean, she just split her gut. She laughed and laughed and laughed. You know why? Because she was 90 years old and she'd been praying all of her life, that she, all of her married life, she'd been praying that she would have a baby. And it was just impossible for her to have a baby. And now this stranger that she doesn't even know, is telling her she's going to have a baby. The stranger turned out to be Yahweh himself. The stranger turned out to be God. And the other two men turned out to be angels. And when Yahweh makes a promise, it doesn't make any difference whether you're 90 or not. God says, because you laughed, Sarah, then I'm going to name the baby. The baby's name is going to be Yitzhak, which means laughter. We're going to name the baby laughter. And so all of Sarah's life, she was reminded every time she called, laughter, come in, laughter, come in, laughter, time to eat, laughter, time to take her nap. She was constantly reminded about the laughter that she started out giving, saying it could never happen, it's stupid. And then it became the laughter of joy, because all of her life she experienced the joy of having the son that she always wanted. And it all began with Abraham, her husband, doing what all Eastern Bedouins still do today. If you're traveling in the desert and you see a stranger and you go to a Bedouin tent, the Bedouin will have you into his tent and he'll feed you a meal and give you the strongest coffee you've ever drank in all your life. And what the Lord wants you to do, I want you to think, my point, I believe that one of the most powerful ways that we can bring Jesus Christ to our neighborhoods is just to open the doors of our home and have people in and get to know them and show hospitality. It's not a complicated thing but it will change your life. Let's pray. Father, I just would ask you that you would help us to realize that leadership is not some great charisma, not some uh, Sir Lawrence of Olivier that has an incredible voice or Lawrence of Arabia that is some exotic figure riding his, his camel out in the desert. Lord, it's not some political, great political figure like Churchill that could galvanize his nation speaking over the radio in World War II. Lord, when we talk about biblical leadership, we talk about things that are not great giftedness. It, is, it has to do with quiet character, what's really going on inside of people. And it's people that do the little things. Lord, we've talked today from your word about showing hospitality. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help some of us to be really encouraged to continue to have open homes. I pray that you would help some precious wives who have become weary and well-doing, who've gotten tired of having people in with it not being reciprocated. I pray, Lord, that you would use today's message to help them to realize what a holy thing that they do.
and that you will ultimately really bless them and reward them for having an open, hospitable home. I pray that you would help husbands to learn to be sensitive and to not spring things on their wives, but to help in planning and deciding what can be done and what can't. And so, Lord, I would pray that we'll realize that hospitality is what creates the bridge that you can use to help communication about real life, about truth, about who Jesus is and what he's done, the bridge that we can drive that information across. And so, Lord, I would pray that you would help us as we look at these characteristics of leadership, help them not just to be things that we learn about on paper, but I'd ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would write them in each one of our lives. But as we close, I pray that my brethren and sisters would think of some people that they need to have into their homes this week. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would make this a very concrete message, that they would think about maybe some people that they haven't uh, touched base with for a while, that they need to call, about some luncheon appointments they need to set up, about some uh, dinner engagements they need to set up. I'd ask you, Lord, that some people that maybe have been tempted to, to live in a closed world, they become very depressed and they're living all by themselves. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to throw the windows open, throw the door open, and help them to let some friends in. And I'd ask you, Lord, that out of those friendships, that you would ultimately use it to introduce us to the greatest friend, the friend that sticks closer to a, than a brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a hospitable people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.